Welcome to the Life's Hard Succeed Anyway podcast, where you will hear transformational stories, positive encouragement, and practical strategies to help you grow your mindset, reach your potential, live your dreams, and experience a purpose-driven, impact-filled life. Here's your host, Alan Blaine. All right, this is Alan Blaine, and I am fired up to interview our special guest today, Dick Like. Let me tell you a little bit about Dick. Dick is the co-founder of Cry Like Realty, or Cry Like Realtors, that he and his partner, Harold Cry, established in 1977 in Memphis, Tennessee, about four hours, three, four hours from where we live here in the Nashville area. Get this, within three years, it became the largest firm in Memphis, Tennessee, and they eventually expanded to the Nashville area in 1992. And within just one year, they became the largest firm here in the Nashville area. By 1993, CryLike reached its first milestone of 1 billion, that's billion with a B, in sales volume. And by 1998, CryLike surpassed 2.5 billion in sales volume. And just one year later, they topped the $3 billion mark. Today, CryLike is the fourth largest real estate company in the nation with eight and a half billion dollars in sales during the 2021 year and a little over that in 2022. They have offices now in seven different states, about 160 different offices over seven different states. And Dick is partner and their team of, I don't know how many agents, I guess, Dick, I'll ask you that here in just a second. But I do know that you and your team are doing roughly 30,000 properties sold every single year that you're a full service real estate company handling the sale, the property management, the insurance, all the things. You had a ton of success. And I'm just really looking forward to getting to hear a little more of your story and sharing it with our listeners. I want to first just thank you for being willing to come on here and take your valuable time and share some of your story with us. Well, you're certainly welcome. It's a good story. First of all, partners aren't the easiest thing to have, but I did pick my partners well and uh, my wife. We'll be married 60 years in December. Congratulations. My business partner, Harold Cry, we pulled together to grow that business as two workhorses pulling together on the wagon. So it turned out that way. So, Well, you've had a ton of success and I want to hear all about it and let you share a lot of great information. You have a lot of experience, a lot of wisdom, but could you just take us back? as far back as you want to go, childhood, if you'd like, and just kind of give us the Cliff Notes version, bring us up to speed of your life in in high speed, if you will, just the Cliff Notes version of it. And by the way, just for our listeners, I know you shared this with me, but how young are you now? You said you've been married 60 years. I was 81 Saturday, this past Saturday. Well, happy birthday. Happy belated birthday. Thank you. This will be episode 60 and you are the second person over 80 that I've interviewed. Both of you have had tremendous success in business and in life. So tell us more about your story, Dick, if you would. Well, I was born in Atlanta, Georgia during World War II. And uh, basically, I can remember that. My mama was building B-29s at Bell Aircraft there in Marietta, Georgia, outside Atlanta. She was supervising 150 folks at Bell Aircraft, and they built the B-29 Strata Fortress. But basically, I grew up in Atlanta as a kid. I uh, always have been sort of interested in machinery, whether it's boats, planes, trains, cars, whatever. But 
Atlanta was a great town for me to grow up in because uh, I can remember that when it was probably smaller than Memphis, Tennessee, to tell you the truth. Wow. And in my lifetime, I can remember that. But there was a lot going on in Atlanta, and it was a great city to grow up in. I went to parochial schools there in Atlanta. And then come about the uh, eighth grade, I found myself in a school for foreign students in Iran. My dad was with Standard Oil of New Jersey. He was an accountant, and he had been asked to take an overseas assignment with Standard Oil. He looked at Indonesia, and he looked at the Middle East, and he decided the Middle East was more to his liking just because of historical things happening at that time. So my eighth grade there was in Iran. That was a great experience. Even got to meet the Shah of Iran. Wow. It was while he was still in control before the revolution there. And uh, I was in a Boy Scout troop there in Iran, and they had an international Mideastern Boy Scout jamboree in Tehran. And I guess because we were the only American troop there, the Shah came by to view us is what it amounted to. Wow. And that was a great experience. I learned a lot by being in the eighth grade and ninth grade. And my eighth, like I said, my eighth grade was in the Middle East and my ninth grade was in a French school in Geneva, Switzerland. So I learned about the continent at that time. I always enjoyed the experiences that I had. I guess I was raised right and I was uh, always wanting to treat others as I'd want to be treated. And I think that's probably one of my key winnings is recognizing that everybody has a story. Everybody has their own likes and dislikes and so forth. My job was just to try to get along in this world and uh, sell as much real estate as I could. And I uh, did a good deal of that myself. If I got this right, you spent eighth grade in Iran because of your father's job with Standard Oil. You spent eighth grade in Iran, ninth grade in Geneva, Switzerland. Where did you end up going to high school at? Were you still overseas? I went to Marist in Atlanta. Marist is the Marist Fathers. It was an all-military high school that had been built about 1902. We were still in the original building. We marched with real M1s every day. They didn't give us bullets for them, but... On our campus, that's what we would do. It was all boys' school. We wore winter woolens, and we wore summer khakis. So it was good training and good discipline. The Marist fathers, they ran the school. So Okay. So you graduated high school from there. Where did you go from there? Did you go to college? Did you start selling real estate? I did. I guess uh, one of the questions you asked was, what were some of the hard things that you face or challenging things that you face? Yeah. I don't always think back about the challenges. I think about what I did right. But the question was that in the my 11th grade, when I got back to Maris for 10th, 11th, and 12th grade, my dad lost his entire life savings in a bad business deal. And instead of me going off to college somewhere, I'd been accepted at Notre Dame and Tulane and a couple of colleges, but the money wasn't there. So I knew I had to work. I had to have a job. And right out of high school at the age of 17, I started at Georgia State Night School. And Georgia State at that time was practically an extension of the University of Georgia. 
set up in Atlanta downtown right near Five Points, and that was for the purpose of educating people there that had jobs and wanted to get a college degree too. And it turned out that that was a good experience for me because I started in pre-med. My parents said, you want to be a doctor, lawyer, Indian chief? And uh, I started in pre-med. And it wasn't long before I decided I didn't want to wait till I was 30 to make a living. So I ended up switching my majors at, at Georgia State after about the first nine months of it. And I went into a BBA degree, business administration degree, with a major in real estate. And that was neat. That real estate major wasn't really very common back then at that time. But we were being taught at night school by the real estate people. Atlanta took off in real estate about 1960. Shortly after that, they built what they call the Hyatt Regency. And it was a hotel with an atrium 20-something stories tall. You'd walk through a tunnel, basically. And then as you got in the lobby, you would look up and see this 23-story atrium there and the elevators were made to look like spaceships you know they had lights on them and all that but it brought people from all over the world to see that architectural work and that sort of kicked off atlanta's growth and i did stay there when i first started at georgia state i had a fraternity brother i joined kappa sig kappa sig fraternity brother said dick you know this vietnam war is going on and i'm, I'm afraid i'm gonna get drafted and I think it was a lottery back then. He said, could you run my business? I said, what do you mean? What kind of business have you got? He said, well, I take care of these apartments for these folks that own them. Uh, when they vacate, I clean them up. I paint them. I keep the grass cut. I keep the pools clean in the winter. I cover the pools. Just maintain them like that. I'm going in the Coast Guard, and I need somebody to run my business or keep that going. I'll only be gone about six months. And when I get back, I'll want to take it back. I said, sure, I think I could do that. And so I did. And in doing that, I met the people that owned the apartments. In this case, it was two young brothers of one of the biggest commercial real estate brokers in Atlanta. Sharp Boylston was the name of the company. And I had the two brothers come to me because I'd been maintaining their apartments. said, you think you could run a construction company? And I'm thinking, well, here I am, 18. What are we going to construct now? Wow. And they said, well, we're going to go in and we're going to take over the worst homes in Memphis now that people are renting and bring them all up. Question was, are they up to urban renewal standards? And so you'll need to go in and bring them up to urban renewal standards, which back then actually meant putting baths and kitchens in them and so forth. And... Uh, I said, well, I think I could do that. So I got in with the two brothers. We started a company called Omega Construction Company. And we uh, started rebuilding apartments. Sometimes at that time in those neighborhoods, the apartments weren't but five or seven years old. And they looked like they were 100 years old because they'd been mistreated and not used like they should. But we took those houses and we painted them. We fixed them up and they leased them and so forth. And... Then we got into some other things, a couple of office buildings downtown Atlanta. We remodeled and brought the rent rates up there. We went to uh, Buckhead, and we uh, took over an apartment complex in Buckhead. That was called a swanky area of town. And we remodeled those apartments and raised their rent up considerably. 
were you partners in these ventures? Yes, that's correct. Okay. And, uh, but it was a, the two brothers and myself, basically, and we worked together. And the latest and greatest thing that we did was we built a brand new Dairy Queen Brazier store on North Avenue, about 10 blocks from the Varsity, which was the world's largest drive-in restaurant. It had a double-deck parking lot off the campus of Georgia Tech. The fellow that had started it was not a good student at Georgia Tech, so he opened up a hot dog stand and grew his company into that and the varsity. But after that, we built this Dairy Queen Brazier, which was the latest at the time. Brazier was a food system to go with Dairy Queen. A lot of folks don't know Dairy Queen went back to the 30s, but they were basically soft serve. And the stores up north, they would serve ice cream all summer long, and then they'd close the store up, go south in trailer parks and whatever in Florida. So we built that latest, greatest store. And by that time, I had a wife and I had a daughter. And I was thinking, you know, Dick, you opened a store. You've been working here for about nine months. You don't really have anything in writing saying that you have any ownership in that store. And uh, so far, I'd been able to trust my partners and all that. But I said, you know, I've got a wife and a little girl now. I better have some kind of future plans. Right. And I went to the brothers and I said, you know, we don't have anything in writing and I'm going to give you two weeks. And in two weeks, if you'll have it in writing, I'll look at it and we'll be partners. If not, I'm out of here. I'm giving you notice that I'm not going to be here after two weeks. They said, well, Dick, you know, we like to do everything on a handshake. I said, I understand, but I, business is business, and I need to know I've got ownership in this store. That's where I'm going to stay. And two weeks later, I came back to see, have you got it? Where are we? They hadn't done it. I said, goodbye. Appreciate everything we've done together today. Didn't know what I was going to do, but Dairy Queen had a regional office in Atlanta. So I went out to Dairy Queen since I just built their latest, greatest store as a contractor. and. They hired me right away, and they put me in charge of the North and South Carolina stores and the North Georgia stores, but included in that me being the remodeling expert on how they could bring their stores up to current standards and so forth. So that's what we did. I did that, and uh, my boss at Dairy Queen called me. Their home office was Minneapolis. I said, Dick, the chairman wants you to get on a plane and come up and see him tomorrow. He has something he wants to discuss with you. I said, well, I'm going to talk to my wife first because it involved a transfer. He said, well, you know, the chairman likes people that can make decisions. I said, I'm going to still talk to my wife first. I was out in a little town South Georgia at the time I got the call. Smart man. <laughs> yeah. I did end up going up to beat the chairman of the board. I met him up there. And... uh he got me on an early morning plane out of Atlanta now. Atlanta, 6 a.m. is 5 a.m. where he was. He was in Minneapolis. So I got up there, and I was probably up there in his office about 10 in the morning. He didn't see me till about 9.30 that night. Another form of negotiating, if you know what I mean. He figured he'd just hand me his hand, and I'd take it no matter what. But I did make the deal, and I told my wife we were going to move to Tennessee and open up a regional office. And as that, I was a regional manager with 300 stores in six and a half states. Wow. Is that how you ended up in Memphis? 
That's how I ended up in Memphis. I looked at Nashville, where you are, and I looked at Memphis. And at that time, I said, Memphis is more my kind of town. It had a better airport, beautiful trees. So I ended up taking that job. And about three and a half years into that job, I was traveling all the time. Now I had two little girls and a wife. And uh, I just called them and I said, you know, I ended up with a degree in real estate. I'm going to get into selling real estate. And uh, he said, but you got stock options and stuff like that. But I didn't find them to really be much incentive, to tell you the truth. So I told him, no, I was going. And that's when I went to the largest real estate company in Memphis at that time. And that was the Sterling Brothers, Barry and Harold. But they just didn't get along. And it wasn't long in there. Harold Cry, my partner-to-be, had joined them about four months before I did. So that's how I got to know him. And about two and a half, three years later, we got to discuss it and said, you know, we can do this better. And that's what happened. This was around Christmas. In real estate back then, your real estate commissions, you know, real estate's all through the state commission, said you had to have a desk and a phone to have an agent. And until you had an agent, you couldn't have a desk and a phone. So we did some due diligence. What's going to take to get a phone system if we decide to leave? That was 1977. Is that yeah, right? That was 76. 76. Yeah, Christmas of 76. And uh, we knew we had to have a phone. And lo and behold, the telephone company with no deposit or anything like that called and asked Barry Sterling, one of the partners of the firm I was working for, when would you like the Cry Like phone installed? So <laughs> that was it. We were out on our ears, and both brothers, they wouldn't talk to both of us at the same time. Each talked to us individually. And of course, the, the normal spiel was to tell how well one partner didn't going to be any good and all that kind of stuff. But we were out at Christmas. I found Christmas a time when some strong things can sometimes happen that you have to pay attention to. And we uh, started our company. That's where we got started. We found an office. And luckily, we'd been selling real estate for about two or three years. So other agents with other companies decided to come with us. That's what we were concerned about. Could we build a company? Right. We started building and it just kept on going. Wow. What a story, Dick. So it's a great story. It is a great story. So you obviously weren't afraid to take a little risk. You haven't been afraid to to make some changes. I think we both had to come up with five thousand apiece to start our new company, and we uh, took a nice office. Uh, they had to build it for us in one of the new office buildings in Memphis, and uh, we had a temporary office while they did that, and then we just kept on growing from there. I want to just back up one step to the Dairy Queen. When you relocated from Atlanta to Memphis, what was that role? You said something about 300 stores. What were you doing for Dairy Queen at that time? I was a region manager. I had been a district manager plus expert on remodeling. And a lot of the stores didn't even have dining rooms back then. So you had to go to these franchisers and they'd made money. So they were pretty happy, but they knew their business. And I had to explain to them why they needed to add a dining room and how they could do it and show them drawings and all that. Was that a good paying job that you left? That must have been a pretty decent job, right? It was a 
pretty good job. Uh, a lot of people would have considered it a good job. There's only seven region managers in the whole United States for the whole company. And uh, I knew that if I went up there, if I got an, promoted there, I might get another region. Maybe there's a better region. I don't know. Otherwise, I might be in Minneapolis. I like the people in Minneapolis, but I really didn't care for the weather. Right. So, you know, when you can drive your Chevrolet Impala out on a lake, that's pretty that gum cold. Yeah, that's some thick ice. What was it that made you make that leap to real estate from that Dairy Queen job? That most that I was in something, and the only person I could blame for my income was myself. Commission selling. Yeah. That's the beauty of real estate. You'll get paid what you're worth, and you'll know what you're worth by your closings and how well you've treated your people. I've always enjoyed helping others, and it's a tremendous business to help others, too. At the same time, help yourself. But it was a great experience, and we just grew with it. The two boys grew together in it and built it and never had any real big squawks with each other or anything like that. That's a miracle in itself. That How, how many years has that been? 45, did you say? 45 years. Uh-huh. 45. 45. Yep. And... I guess I should say the last deal Harold and I made was I went to Harold in 19 and I said, you know, Harold, we got all these businesses we're running together. We own half and half, 50% each of us. I think we ought to try to work out a deal where we don't turn this. I'm going to be 80 a year and a half before you and it's coming up and I don't think you want to be 80. And then have the family try to figure out how to split the sheets, so to speak, or whatever. And uh, we worked on that. We sold 12 operating companies that we both own 50% of. And Harold worked that out. And then I went back to him and I said, you know, the real estate, we need to do that too, I think, Harold. And Harold said, well, let me think about it. And that was a Thursday. And he lives up in Brentwood, Tennessee, up in Nashville. And the next Monday, he was down in Memphis in my office with a sheet of paper with all the properties on it. And he said, Dick, you pay me what I got down here for any of these properties. You can have them and I'll pay you the same amount and I'll take them. And uh, we worked that deal out in 21. So I'm now, I guess, emeritus, cry like emeritus, but great experience. and. Learned a lot of good things, saw a lot of good things, have a lot of good people with me. So, are you still selling homes? I still sell. I sell some. Mainly, right now, I've been messing with these homes built before the Civil War when the South was one of the wealthiest parts of the United States. And uh, people don't always realize that because you tell them you're from Mississippi and they say, oh, yeah, you guys are all barefoot and pregnant down there. I have to let them know that before the Civil War, we were one of the wealthiest parts of the United States. It was still a farming country, you know. It was before the Industrial Revolution, so. You're in Columbus, right? Is that where Columbus, I remember? Mississippi. Columbus, Mississippi. Columbus, Mississippi. It's across the state from Natchez. Natchez is on the Mississippi River, and we're on the Tom Bigby River here. And you live, if I remember right, I mean, those that can watch this on our Life's Hard Succeed Anyway YouTube channel can see the video of you here. You said you're in one of your homes, but is that one of the historic homes? I know you have at least a couple historic homes. Yes. How old is that home? That home was completed 
around 1850. It was started in 1845, probably took five years to build. It's solid masonry, 14-foot ceilings. And what we did once Joanne and I bought a home down here, the first one is the one I'm in right now that we bought 21 years ago. We decided that we would fill these homes with American-made furniture of the same period the houses were built. Wow. So if you go through this home, we have some of the finest American antiques at that time. And uh, the same with the other house down there, the big brick house. Now, the brick house, because of its architectural significance, is actually a U.S. national landmark. And that's very good historical status. If you're a landmark, that's pretty much the top of it. So that house there is a U.S. national landmark. And we open them up and let people come through every year. We have what we call a pilgrimage. And for about 10 days, they can buy tickets and come through these homes and see what life was like back at that time. I'm sitting here right now, and we still have the original kitchen house out back here because the kitchens weren't built. In that time, you didn't build your kitchen in the house. They didn't want the kitchen to catch fire and burn the house down. Right. And the original servants' quarters, a two-room frame house next door. I can look at both of those from where I am right now. Just a great piece of history. And because of the money, these farmers that came to this area, there was what's called the Black Prairie in Mississippi and the Black Belt in Alabama. And if you look at a satellite photo of Mississippi and lower Alabama, you can see a crescent shape in the land, and that's the Black Prairie. It grew crops like you just wouldn't believe. That's where the money came from. From the farming in that crescent area of Mississippi, huh? Yes. Interesting. And you, so you said built around 1850s. It probably took five years to build Riverview because it's all bricks, not just the outside with a wooden frame. All, all the interior walls are three bricks wide. Wow. All masonry. Just a beautifully built home. It's as warm and friendly today as it ever has been. So, And you have, I think you said, 175-year-old furniture filling those homes? That's right. Going back 175 years. It's uh, made-in-America furniture. Wow. The furniture in these homes were made in one place was New Orleans. They had what they call Furniture Row. But then you had New York City. You had Cincinnati. You had Philadelphia. You had Boston, and all this was made here in America. And then we have a piano in this house right here, actually made in Boston, Massachusetts, by Chickering Concert Grand, brought by boat all the way around Florida, on up the Tom Bigby River to the house here. Amazing. I can't wait to see it someday, Dick. Love to have you see it. Come see it. Thank you. We'd love to come see it. So you're still selling some real estate. What are you spending most of your time doing these days now? Well, selling real estate, still finishing the restoration of Riverview, the brick house. We're not completely through there yet. We're now down to the last thing, the kitchen, and uh, then we'll be through with that. We still have grounds to do outside, but outside of that, it's just a neat place to live. It's certainly a lot easier to go get something than being in traffic all the time in the big cities. Right. I can speak well on that because my hometown of Atlanta has been nothing but a traffic stop its whole career that I've been living. 
Yeah. But here, about 25,000 people in the town of Columbus. We have another 20,000 in the town of Starkville, which is Mississippi State University. And then we have a third town. This is called the Golden Triangles, three towns. The other is West Point, Mississippi. And combined West Point and the other two cities, we're about 150,000 people living here. Just a, a really great community. And then I'm an hour's drive to the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa and 30 minutes drive to Mississippi State University in Starkville. And Columbus is really the, the oldest town here. And it got started right about 1818 when they got the territory from the Native Americans. Mm, so much history there. You've had a ton of success. What would you say to our listeners, Dick, that are listening that are earlier in their careers and wanting to know what is one or more of the keys to success in business? Definitely how you treat others. My mother's always told me, you know, you treat people as you'd want to be treated. And that's something we miss today a lot. I think we get tied up in having to do things and all kinds of things, but it's really nice for me to know I've been able to do what I've achieved, yet I feel like I can walk into a room of people and carry on a conversation and uh, be down to earth with them. And that's what really helps me when I'm working with a client because, you know, your home is very personal and there's a lot of things you already have preconceived about what your home's going to be like. But I have tremendous experience going back to way back. And sometimes I can help you see through some things that you may not see. I've been there. I've seen a lot of people, helped a lot of people buy their homes, their dream homes and, and everything. And that's a help. Recently, I, I sold uh, five homes in this area, all built before the Civil War. I had a, a lady that's from uh, Little Rock, has been a tax attorney in Delaware up there with Biden's state for the last 25 years. And I had a house on the market down here. She loved the history of it. She came down to look at it and she bought it and she's just bubbling over. Another lady in Aberdeen is a town about 20, 30 minutes north of us here. And uh, a lady came from California. Her parents moved her to California when she was nine years old. She's living on the West Coast in a condo where the cruise ships leave. And she bought a house up in Aberdeen. She'd always liked English Tudor. This particular one was English Tudor, built in 1929. And they just tickled. You know, it's just, they're really happy that they did it. I got a guy in the construction business in Tuscaloosa, came over and bought another antebellum home from me. And uh, he's going to probably live there. He's getting to a retirement age. And he's just going to come retire and do things to that house. So you still love what you're doing. I mean, it's pretty obvious when I hear you talking, you enjoy helping others, as you said, you know, finding solutions to their needs, wants, desires, and you obviously don't need to do it for the money. You're still doing it because you love it. And I think that's great. I think I know exactly what you meant, but I want to go back to a quote. I want to quote you as best I can. And you said something earlier about, why you went into real estate and left Dairy Queen, you said something about you get paid what you're worth 
and you find out what you're worth. You said something along those lines, two points kind of in one. Explain that, if you would, for our listeners, what you mean by that. The neatest thing about real estate sales is if you put the deal together and close it, you get paid. Nobody can say, well, you're a lady. You can't make that kind of money. You just say, I'll show you. We'll close that piece of property and I'll get my fee for doing that. And it makes it much cleaner that way when you understand that you're there, you're going to get paid a fee. If you do a good job, you'll get closed because it's not easy to close them necessarily. There's all kinds of little things that can happen. But I know that when I write a contract and I got a contract written and I take it to the closings attorneys and everything, that money's coming to me when it gets closed. Yep. And I'm going to write it. I'm going to sit there and help them and make sure they get through closing and they get what they want. Everything's going the way they want. And there's things that I can tell people that they don't always think about. Just walking through a 170-year-old house, most people are going to say, a house that old can't be worth anything. They're built better than what's built today. The lumber, the timber, the masonry, the house down the street, the one that I told you is a national landmark. The ceilings and the parlors and the dining room are magnificent plaster. They actually brought plaster makers from Ireland here to make those ceilings when they built the house. Each brick in the house weighs 11 pounds. And the bricks back then didn't have holes in them like today's brick. It's just beautifully done. Wow. I love that. It really is. And having been in construction... I've built houses for people, but I told the family, the next time I start building houses for people, just shoot me because there's too many loopholes to get into there when you're building for people. And uh, the um, beauty of it is that they appreciate what I sell them. They love it. They'll still laugh and smile at me when they see me after they've closed. And I made a dream work for them. I paid attention. I listened. The old saying, you got two ears and one mouth. It's sometimes best to keep the mouth shut and you'll learn and be surprised what you learn. And that's how you learn. You got to learn a house is personal. It's got to meet the needs of the person in it. It's not discretionary. That's such great advice, Dick. Such great advice. The only way to know what people want and need and desire is, like you said, is to ask intentional questions and listen. That's right. The tough part today is the youngins don't even want to talk. You know, they want to text. They want to do all kinds of things. But I believe the people that I've worked with, they really appreciated the art of conversation and understanding. Well, you've obviously mastered it for many, many years, and your success proves that. I want to also just go back before we start to wrap this up. I love what you said earlier on in this interview. You said something about challenges. I mean, you've lived 81 years. No doubt you've had a ton of challenges because we all do. But I love what you said. You don't focus on the challenges. I mean, you're not even wanting to talk about them on this interview because you don't want to focus on them. You want to focus on the blessings, the benefits. Yeah, getting the job done, being positive. You're not going to do much if you're not positive about what you're doing. And you've got to do that. And it's such a great relief when you pull a contract together where a buyer and seller, you're working with. Basically, I guess you could call them adversaries, but I never treat them that way, buyer and seller. Try to bring them all together, and that way they'll appreciate what you've done. You've listened, so you got them what they wanted. 
The worst thing to do would be to sell them something they didn't want. I can remember a doctor one time, million-dollar house. He bought this house for his wife without even telling her. That was not a winner. She never stepped in the door. Oh, wow. That takes quite an ego. If that was my client, I would have said, now, don't you think you ought to let Mary see your house? Yeah. Yeah, speaking of egos, and and I want to ask you another question. You just said that term just reminded me earlier. I was thinking, you know, one thing that you and Harold have had a long, successful partnership, but just I was thinking earlier, you must both not have big egos, even amidst all the success that you both have had over the years. And I'm sure that's probably been a key to you all being able to work things out, continue the relationship, right? I mean, that's what breaks partnerships up so often, it seems. Unlike the brothers I told you, Harold worked for when I joined that firm, they were brothers, but they got in the fisticuffs at the company picnic playing tag football, flag football. You know, it just, I don't understand that. And Harold and I, that was probably an education for us because we both worked for the brothers and made sure we weren't going to be like that. Yeah, right. You you learned real quick what not to do. What piece of advice would you give yourself? I mean, you've got a lot of wisdom. I'm sure you've learned a lot of things the hard way. What is at least one piece of advice you'd give your younger self if you could go back in time and do that so we can all learn from you? Well, it's been such a wonderful trip. It hasn't been a perfect trip. I can remember I was usually the morning guy. So I would be at the office maybe two or three hours before Harold came in. He would stay later at night, and I like to get home. He'd tell you, well, Dick likes to be home with his wife. I was at the office at 7 o'clock one morning when a deputy server came to the office and knocked on the door, and he handed me a suit. The suit was like $240 million. Wow. Against our company. And the suit was we were trying to resegregate a integrated neighborhood. We were trying to turn it back and make it a segregated neighborhood. And that's certainly not what we would be doing. But a couple of months before that, Texaco got sued for that same amount of money, $240 million or whatever. So it was a shock to me to have that done to me that early in the morning in peaceful time. But we got through that. We got attorneys help us, and we got through it all. It wasn't any big hit to the company because it just wasn't a provable deal. I mean, we're trying to resegregate an integrated neighborhood, but uh, the suit was. It was federal suit, so, I mean, it, I, I think I know how uh, Trump feels. But <laughs> yeah. it, we, we made it through that. That was a challenge. And, of course, the big real estate crash, you know, years ago, those were big challenges. Right. Sales go down and bring them back up and all that. Right. Yeah. What advice would you give to others who may be in the middle of their own challenge right now or maybe one in the future that they're going to go? One that I've always heard is God doesn't give you any more than you can handle. That's one I've used during the years. And it may be tough right now, but it'll get better. Times will get better. And all you got to do is try to do your best when you're dealing with others. That's what gets me really riled up today with what all's going on and the way kids are being brought up to hate other kids and all that. That's just not a good deal. Yeah, it is sad. 
But that's some great advice, though, is just to know, hey, we just keep moving and we're going to get through whatever challenge we're in. It doesn't last forever. And another one is they can kill you, but they can't eat you. (laughs) What is one habit when you think about like your day to day life over the last however many decades now career? What would you say is one habit that's really been instrumental in your success in life? Well, trying to make sure that you always contact those that contact you, for one thing. You may say, well, I don't feel like it or whatever. Mm -hmm. You don't judge others. I found that out. Uh, I can remember one of my agents was just blown over when a guy in bib overhauls with no shoes bought a house from him. As soon as she saw him, he said, that guy can't buy a thing. But he was a retired plumber, and she sold him a house. If she had walked away, she would not have made that sale. But you you just have to understand that people are people. And rather than talk bad about people, I just say people are funny. Yeah. You got to figure them out. Some you can't. but And some you can't. Some you just have to accept that I will never figure them out and just let it go, right? Yep. There's that, something that's going to happen like that. Yeah. I, I've never been a slave to work. I had a 57-foot Chris Craft Romer yacht. That was our first getaway for 24 years before we had these antebellum homes here in Columbus. But I've never completely been a slave to work. So That's important. You need to pace yourself and uh, really pay attention to what's of interest to those that you're working with. Yeah. So you're 81. How many more years? You got another couple decades in you at least? What are you feeling at this point? My wife and I, like I said, next month will be 60 years. My parents on my mother's side, they were 99 and 100 when they passed away in New Orleans. So I'd like to think Joanne and I will do the same thing. We spend more time together. We, I'm still tied somewhat to real estate responsibilities, but outside of that, we're pretty much sitting in these big homes enjoying them. I had a fellow, he was a stockbroker. And actually, he was a car dealer, and he's still in the business. He's one of the larger dealers in uh, Memphis. And he said, Dick, I decided to get out of the stock market. I could lose money both ways and everything. That's why I went started buying American antiques. And uh, that's what he did. He taught me that. And that's why I've got them. I mean, we can sit in our houses, and we can enjoy these beautiful works of art because they're made by hand, hand carved out of beautiful woods and all that. And we walk in there and enjoy it being in that kind of an environment where somebody else worked real hard to build something pretty. And we've got it now. I love that. When you think about the future, Dick, what is it at this stage of life that excites you the most? At this side, it's just being together and the little things that we do, you know, I've always been a car nut, and I recently bought a Rolls-Royce Phantom 7. The last year they produced a drop head. The British call a convertible a drop head, and the last time it was produced was 2017, and I took delivery. It came out of San Diego. It was delivered one Friday evening here by two Russian kids. looked like they just got out of high school. They had their own Ford Dooley pickup, and they had a 40-foot trailer, and the Rolls-Royce Phantom was in the front of that trailer, 
and then a Ferrari was in the back of the trailer. They drove it all the way from San Diego to my house here in Columbus, and then the next morning they were going to take the Ferrari to New Jersey. But, you know, just do some things like that that you really... I've been a car nut all my life. I like quality. I've had 30 Rolls and Bentleys over the last 40 years, and I got into them because Rolls was built by hand. I like to piddle. I like to work on things. And I didn't have to try to figure out how it was put together. And the other thing, people say, well, you got a European car there. You got metric. I said, nope. We got SAE from the British with feet and pounds. American tools are really what the British had, not metric. So you learn these things going throughout life. You just always think that are learning and so forth. And the cars were so beautifully built and top of the line materials and all of that kind of stuff so yeah yeah wow i like to drive i like to drive too and, and you like to drive nice vehicles it sounds like those are uh some beautiful cars i'd love to see that 2017 as well what did you call it drop top no you called it something drop else head. drop head convertible a hard top in england is a fixed head because it won't open right and a drop head is a convertible because it opens okay right on hey this has been wonderful, Dick. It's been fun getting to hear more of your story. I really appreciate it. Any closing comment that you might want to share with the Life's Hard Succeed Anyway audience? Well, I think you, you can't let others control your life. You've got to be the leader. You've got to know what you want, and you've got to work toward it. And that's what I've done all my life is I've worked toward it, and that's how I learned how to do it. It's not a case of reading a book. I'm not much of a book reader. I know that's not good for you because you write books, but <laughs> just one. <laughs> but you have to do what you enjoy. I've been able, working with my hand is what I enjoy building a house or building things, doing things, working on the cars, all that kind of stuff. I do enjoy that. And uh, it's a great experience. I think if you just go through life, you don't judge others. You respect everybody, and you go on your way doing the best you can. That'll be a successful trip. Love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Dick, for your time. This has been a great interview. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you love this podcast, grab some of Alan's free resources on his website at alanblain.com, spelled A-L-L-A-N-B-L-A-I-N.com. You can also find links to Alan's Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok there in his contacts page. Lastly, if you can leave a five-star review for us on your favorite podcast app, that will get these messages out to more people and it will really mean the world to us. Thanks in advance and make it a great day.